Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Gawker. 
And Gawker, I guess a few years ago, outed him as a homosexual by Gawker. But Gawker, in the opinion of Teal, has also, um, you know, outed or embarrassed or exposed needlessly a number of people. And he thinks that the kind of stuff that Gawker has publicized about, you know, various persons, public figures, whatever, is not anything that really helps anyone at all. It's nothing that's in the so-called public interest is the way that, that he would put it. But it's really nothing that, you know, you might say is a benefit to a rational person. Why do I need to know the sexuality of Peter Thiel? Now, I don't think it should be at all uh, something that he should be ashamed of necessarily, but it's his own private business. So what business does Gawker have outing something like this? Recently, you may have you know, been aware of the story, the wrestler Hulk Hogan has sued Gawker wife because of invasion of privacy. It published a sex tape, I guess, that Hulk Hogan was in. I'm very happy that I haven't seen that sex tape because it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I, I do not want to see it. I don't want to have the uh, <laughs> the desire then to, to unsee it. But recently, a Florida jury awarded him $140 million for this invasion of privacy. And the New York Times story that I've linked to over at DontLetItGo.com, that New York Times story talks about the fact that this week it's been revealed that the financier of that litigation is Peter Thiel. Um, Herman in, in the chat room here, he says that journalists are the biggest stalkers in the world. This is where it starts to get interesting, right? Because you know, I was reading this story, and for me, when I look at this, you know, what has he done? He is financing litigation against Gawker. And some people say, okay, well, it's just revenge because Gawker outed him, so it's a personal vendetta of some kind. And he says, no, it's not wholly about that. He thinks that Gawker is a bad actor in general and is trying to, you know, basically hold Gawker accountable for its bad actions in the world of journalism. Um, so, you know, that he's doing this. I think he's got every right to do it insofar. I mean, you know, if you go and you file a lawsuit and it's frivolous, there's all sorts of sanctions and things. So attorneys are not going to take these cases unless they're actual valid cases. We just like, you know, as I've said, we've seen Hulk Hogan win $140 million in front of a Florida jury because of that invasion of privacy. So these are lawsuits done under legitimate laws that are on the books, holding Gawker accountable for conduct that, to me, I agree, is also unsavory. So bravo for him. Um, I don't think it is an infringement on freedom of expression of any kind to hold media accountable for following the law. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, this is another debate we can have on another day, but it, it's always been the case in the law that so-called public figures have less privacy than private figures. I would say even I, I count as a, a private figure. You know, I, I don't have a big Rush Limbaugh or a Mark Levin-sized audience here, although, you know, someday who knows what we'll get, right? But, um you know, the, the whole idea is that if it's Madonna, if it's Hulk Hogan, that these people somehow have less privacy than you and I. It's in the public interest to know, uh, you know, private details about these people. And I have always disagreed with that. 
I have never thought the mere fact that you are a celebrity, right, the mere fact that you are a celebrity should make you have less privacy than the rest of us. Um, you know, if you're out in public in a place that allows photography and everything else, okay, that's fine, fair deal, and you are going to attract more attention, but there is no reason that you should say that, you know, someone, just because they become a movie star, thereby relinquishes all of the privacy. They should be able to take all the steps that any of us can do to shield ourselves from the public eye. And so insofar as privacy law is geared towards whether it's in the public interest and they gear about whether it's in the public interest to your celebrity, I think that's ridiculous. So that's just a side note, right? Um, but nonetheless, Hogan and I guess other people are able to win some of these lawsuits and put a lot of pressure on Gawker. I think this is good. I don't think that it infringes on the freedom of expression of Gawker uh, to not be able to expose private details of, of people's lives. Um, you know that that that's a you know that you think there's some sort of a, a conflict of interest there, but there is not a conflict of interest if you are rational. What is within a person's real rights? of freedom of expression, it is not to expose private details of someone's life, right? So so I don't think there's any infringement there. And in fact, Teal also does not see what he's doing as a conflict between, you know, privacy on the one hand and freedom of expression on the other. He has also supported causes of freedom of expression. The article goes on to say, if you scroll a bit down, it says, Mr. Teal has donated money to the Committee to Protect Journalists and has often talked about protecting freedom of speech. He said he did not believe his actions were contradictory. Here's a quote from Teal. He says, I refuse to believe that journalism means massive privacy violations, he said. And going on, continuing with what Teal says, he says, I think much more highly of journalists than that. It's precisely because I respect journalists that I do not believe they are endangered by fighting back against Gawker, end quote. And then continuing, he says, quote, it's not like it is some sort of speaking truth to power or something going on here. He says, the way I've thought about it is that Gawker has been a singularly terrible bully. He says, in a way, if I didn't think Gawker was unique, I wouldn't have done any of this. He says, if the entire media was more or less like this, this would be like trying to boil the ocean, end quote. And it says, Mr. Teal has said that he had not targeted any other media companies. Now, it, again, you know, boil the ocean, that's what inspired the, the title of this week's show. But, you know, when you read this at first, you're thinking, okay, look, he's going after Gawker. He thinks Gawker is uniquely bad and in effect, you know, there wouldn't be any point in doing it if Gawker wasn't uniquely bad. He says, I wouldn't have done any of this if Gawker wasn't uniquely bad in this way. Why? Because that would be like trying to boil the ocean. And, you know, again, if you're reading this in the context of what he's done, and I'm saying, yay, I think he has a right to do it. This is all good. And then it's like, yeah, well, it's not like trying to boil the ocean. And then I stopped and I said, hey, what if Gawker was just one of many and in fact, you know, here Herman the German in the chat room, he had said, look, that journalists are the biggest stalkers in the world. I remember journalists as being the cause of Princess Diana's uh, death potentially, right, because they were trying to evade, I guess, the motorcycles when they were in the limo and they crashed and everything. 
Um, I mean, that's an extreme situation, but there are a lot of journalists who cause people a lot of problems because they're trying to invade those person's privacy. So this can happen. Um, but, you know, suppose Gawker wasn't unique. The other thing that came up this week is the Katie Couric story. Uh, Katie Couric has apparently manipulated video footage, I believe it is. Is it video or audio footage? I can't remember which. To make it seem like people did not have answers to her questions about guns or something. So she's misrepresenting the ability of the defenders of gun rights, I guess, to make their case. And this is a horrible, horrible misuse of the, you know, I would say journalistic power, but I wouldn't call it power, but, you know, the journalistic venue, the journalistic profession, people are supposed to respect journalists and say that they're actually reporting the truth. And if they're manipulating it or if they're using it to bully people, invade their privacy, this is, this is terrible, right? Um, you know, so what, but what if it was? What if it was more widespread? What if what Teal was doing was like trying to boil the ocean? Why is it that he wouldn't do it? Why would he not do it in that case? And that was what I was starting to think about when I was thinking about this week's show title. That seems like a very long-winded way to get to it, right? But, you know, the, the whole idea is that, yeah, a lot of what we're going to be trying to do if we are bucking the trend of an entire culture is going to be like boiling the ocean, so to speak. It's going to be that small an effort in that huge kind of momentous, uh, you know, task or project, and yet as long as you're able to do it and as long as you're able to have some effect, some deterrent effect against bad conduct in this case, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you do it simply because you are, quote, you know, you're trying to boil the ocean, so to speak? And that that was what I was thinking. I was thinking even if, even if it was like boiling the ocean, then you would still need to do it. You would still try to stand up for the truth. And then what do you do? I mean, Teal's, even though he's a billionaire, he's got only so many resources, time and energy and everything else he wants to devote to these causes, these cases. And maybe what he'll do is he'll inspire somebody else and that person will inspire somebody else and then people will all join into the cause. Uh, he can draw attention just by having one really well-posed case, right? Any, a good piece of litigation can draw the attention to journalists, to attorneys, right? So, I, you know, again, I, I don't see that. But bravo to Teal, so to speak. And it does turn out that, uh, you know, a lot of other people have kind of similarly taken this side of the, the story. Uh, Jim Treacher is out there. Sonny Loman as well thinks that, yeah, Teal is, is doing a good thing. It is not against freedom of expression to censor people, to sue people for unlawful invasions of privacy, and that's apparently what Gawker is is guilty of. There is no purpose in the world, no legitimate purpose in the world for spreading a Hulk Hogan sex tape out there, for example. I don't care the, about the sexuality of prominent CEOs and tech entrepreneurs and stuff. It just doesn't matter. What I care about is what they accomplish. And if you think, you know, you're doing some kind of public service, you're not. You're just trying to get clicks for no good reason. It's just like a, a, a rag, some sort of a rag. So bravo to Teal. But again, you know, even if, 
even if he was boiling the ocean, so to speak. I think he should continue and you know, trying to boil the ocean. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as, as we go on to talk about freedom of expression and what really endangers freedom of expression. Go to another New York Times article that I have linked again at don'tletitgo.com. I have the links to all of these articles. And this one is the UN, United Nations. Apparently, there are kind of public interest groups or what they call non-governmental organizations, and they need to get UN accreditation for some reason, I suppose, to operate in certain ways throughout the world. It's pretty disgusting that the UN has some sort of power over non-governmental organizations or interest groups and things like that. But apparently they do because these groups apply for UN accreditation all the time. There must be something to it. Um, I've never even known of this before, that you need to apply for UN accreditation. That's how ignorant I am, right? But there is a press freedom group that has applied for UN accreditation, and its application has been rejected. This is an article from New York Times yesterday. It says, the countries that rendered a verdict Thursday on whether an advocacy group for press freedom can freely roam the halls of the United Nations included those that have jailed and harassed journalists, Azerbaijan, China, and Pakistan. It says they were among the countries on a panel that rejected a bid by the group. It's called the Committee to Protect Journalists to Acquire Accreditation at the United Nations. So it's just that they can roam the halls there, I guess, and be able to report. It says the group's application has been deferred seven times. This was the first time the application was put up for a vote before a United Nations accreditation panel composed of 19 countries. The vote was 10 to 6 to reject with three abstentions. Now, why is it that they've only told us here at the New York Times three of the six countries that rejected? I'm wondering what the other three are, and I'm wondering if they're going to tell us the name of the other three somewhere. Um, Oh, Samantha Power. Well, good for her. At least she voted for accreditation. She couldn't get away for not doing that, right? (sighs) Joel Simon, the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, said in a statement that he was disappointed that the group's application had been rejected by, quote, a small group of countries with poor press freedom records. He says... um, And then Samantha Power said about this, she said, it's increasingly clear that the NGO committee acts more and more like an anti-NGO committee. Uh, The advocacy groups, they say, can be a testy presence at the UN meetings. Uh, Sometimes the, the countries have moved to exclude nearly two dozen advocacy groups, transgender people, drug addicts, et cetera, et cetera. But the rejection of this came as the panel had been deferring decisions on a larger share of applications And let's see if I can hit the other ones. Okay, the no votes came from, here we go, Azerbaijan, uh, Burundi, China, Cuba. Notice, they didn't put Cuba earlier, right? Nicaragua, uh, Pakistan, Russia, South Africa, Sudan, and Venezuela. Now, actually, those those cannot be no votes. Oh, yeah, okay, the no votes. God, of course, they only told three. Okay, sorry, I'm not counting earlier. Um, India abstained. Iran and Turkey both abstained, and they didn't vote, which is just as much uh, like a a no vote. So, of course, Cuba. Here we are, right? United States, we are 
supposedly normalizing our relations with Cuba, how wonderful Cuba is and going to be. This is part of Barack Obama's legacy. And they are voting no uh, to accrediting the Committee to Protect Journalists at the United Nations. Shame on Azerbaijan, Burundi, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Pakistan, Russia, South Africa, Sudan, and Venezuela. Venezuela, of course, along with Iran and Turkey. India, that's really surprising, though. Would you think India would do that? Not necessarily. But this is where the true danger to freedom of speech is. And, you know, again, it's around the world. At least Samantha Powers went ahead and voted for you know, the accreditation in this case and seemed to make a decent statement about it. At least she's there. But in terms of actually calling out the specific countries and the human rights violations and the persecution of journalists in those countries, is she going to go ahead and do that with respect to Iran and Turkey and Cuba, right, and Venezuela, all of these darlings of the left? Somehow I doubt it. Somehow I really doubt it. But this is, this is true danger. Of freedom of expression. And this is one of the reasons it's so important to continue to uphold that right. Um, over here in the, in the chat room, Corey says, isn't journalism dead anyway? I don't think journalism is dead. I mean, it's certainly go, uh, you know, going through some sort of a reformation. And one of the problems is, is that a lot of um, Okay, someone's uh, putting a message here in the chat room. Sorry, I got distracted. Um, Yeah, I don't think journalism is dead yet. It's going through a reformation of of a certain kind. And a lot of people are getting their news more and more from less traditional sources. And it seems like in terms of, you know, becoming an organization that's going to get access, for instance, instance to the the White House pool or whatever, you know, insofar as only approved journalistic outlets can do that, that is a problem, and we're going to need to try to address that. But I don't think journalism is dead. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm surprised. I, I go to the New York Times, and by the way, those of you who support the show, one of the things that you support is my subscription, my online subscription to New York Times. So thank you for doing that. Um, but I'm surprised at the objective reporting that you can get at the New York Times. Sometimes, as with that last article that I looked at, you had to read all the way to the bottom to get all of the juicy details about Cuba and Iran, so to speak, right? Um, they're not going to give you the stuff that you really need to know at the top of the article. But you can you can get the full picture. And sometimes even the editorial slant on some of the pieces is quite surprisingly good, Um Definitely. Uh, yeah, Mo says the new challenge is filtering out decent outlets. Yeah, we learned that with Breitbart recently. We've learned that with Dredge. The number of times that I've been on Dredge and clicked on the Alex Jones Info Wars and immediately closed out the window. It, it's, it's just disgusting. Buffett and Bezos are betting on journalism brands long term. And he says, I say that they recoup their investments and more. It looks like Bezos is doing a decent job with the Washington Post. And that's pretty cool. I like seeing Bollock Conspiracy over there because they've got a really good point of view that I think needs to be expressed. And it's got a very nice outlet. Um, I'm not as familiar with exactly what outlets Buffett is investing in, but I've, I've liked what Bezos 
is doing with with uh, Washington Post. So, yeah, Mo says Drudge used to be a daily visit for me. Now I don't visit the site. Same, yeah. I I I'll go there sometimes, but I go there far less often. You know, I just kind of go to. It's it's almost like um, a Gawker's thing where you're looking at an accident, a car accident. That's how I feel like when I go to Drudge. So much sensationalism and phony populism. And some of the worst thing, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you've left Drudge too far back to, to know this, but he has put headlines about exorcism, exorcism, like demons and stuff. He has big headlines about this. It is ridiculous. It's it's like the National Enquirer, but with a weird, unpredictable political slant. And, of course, since it became pro-Trump, it makes it even, even worse. So let's go ahead and, and get on to some other news. Again, don'tletitgo.com is where you grab all the program notes. Next story, thanks to Rob Abiera. He says, well, he, he didn't say this, but he gave me this horrible story. Headline is, court is to hear appeal from Pervy Patel, who has been convicted of feticide. This is published May 23rd. Pervy Patel was bleeding through her layers of clothing when she arrived alone at the emergency room in Mishawaka, Indiana, on the night of July 13, 2013. She was feeling very disoriented and weak. She later testified physically she was in pain. She told the medical staff she had passed clots. She thought she was 10 to 12 weeks pregnant. For weeks, Patel, who lived with her religious Indian immigrant parents and disabled grandparents, had been texting her friend about cramps and missed periods. Maybe it was just stress, etc. She had been keeping her relationship with a co-worker secret from her family, but her friend knew. Convinced Patel to take a pregnancy test, it came out positive. Uh, She said, my family would just kill me and him, she texted her friend. I'm just not ready for it. At the hospital, she kept texting her friend, which the medical staff found strange for a woman in distress. Uh, They described her as having a flat effect examining her. The OBGYN became alarmed. They saw signs of a far more developed pregnancy. Where was the baby? Had it been moving when it was born? Patel said it had not. She'd placed the remains in a dumpster. By then, Patel had lost about 20% of her blood. She needed surgery for the placenta that she had not yet passed. Um... Shortly before rushing out of the hospital to search for what he believed could be a live baby, one of the doctors called the police. When she woke up from sedation, there was a police officer stationed by her bed. She's the first woman in the United States to be convicted of feticide for having an illegal abortion, and she faces 20 years in prison. And apparently they heard the appeal, or they're going to hear the appeal this coming Monday. Trump told MSNBC, of course, everything's got to be about Trump, right? He says, if abortion is banned, quote, there has to be some sort of punishment for the woman. Anti-abortion groups protested that they had no intention of prosecuting women for having abortions under the desired ban, only doctors who allegedly victimized them. But Trump eventually released a prepared statement saying, yeah, only the doctor uh, would hold, be held responsible. But no, here they say, no, the lines are not so clear. The woman and the provider are often one and the same says 100,000 women, according to public health experts, per year have covertly tried to end the pregnancies themselves. They do this in Texas. Um, And now, because a lot of abortion clinics are closing, it makes matters worse. 
Uh, they don't know what happened to her before she went to the hospital, how long, you know, far along the pregnancy was, etc. But they concede that she ordered pills from a drug mart trying to do the abortion. She took them. Um, and, you know, she was the only one who was charged in this case. Abortion is legal in Indiana, but in 2009, they say, after the shooting of a pregnant bank teller, Indiana legislators decided to stiffen the penalties for causing the death of a gestating fetus. It's the law. This is the law that is supposedly giving them the right to charge Patel. So think about this, right? They take a law that was designed to criminalize the shooting of a pregnant woman and causing the death of the fetus, and they use that to punish the pregnant woman herself, which is clearly not what it was intended to do, but that's what they're going to do. Well, I hope that it fails because, I mean, you know, again, I would say even if you say there are rights vis-a-vis other people, right, because if a woman is walking around carrying a pregnancy and she clearly, you know, from everything you can tell, she intends to keep that pregnancy, it is her decision and it is her rights, in effect, that you're violating there. And you could say, okay, it's some sort of elevated crime, you know, elevated assault, battery, et cetera, against the person. But the rights come from the woman. And so you cannot take a law that punishes the killing of a fetus through assault on a woman and use it to prosecute a woman herself. That is, that is completely wrong. And, it's, of course, it's an anti-abortionist dream, but let's hope it fails. On another abortion-related story, Rob Abbey also also sent this to me. Um, If you recall, the Oklahoma governor vetoed an attempt in Oklahoma to outlaw abortion. And as a reaction to that veto, there are a number of Oklahoma lawmakers who are saying that they are open to try to override that veto. Uh, At first, they say they want to talk to the governor before possibly attempting to override the veto, but they are remaining, they say, committed to protecting unborn life, as they call it. And they're going to keep pressing on to keep allowing women to be criminalized for asserting their own rights to their own life. Let's hope that they fail. Let's hope that Pervy Patel succeeds in her litigation. I mean, it's terrible that she has to go through this besides everything that she's already gone through. Yeah, just Jean says, um, if abortion is legal, this doesn't make any sense. Yes, it doesn't. It makes absolutely no sense. If it's legal, then, you know, again, this is a, a choice of the mother. And in that case, in Patel's case, clearly it was her own choice. Rob in the chat room here says that there were complaints on the Oklahoma floor today about ending the session without an override. So they want to do it right away. No hesitation at all. Can never, you know, even rest for a minute in the battle against women's rights. This is really, really sad. Yeah. Uh, Sally in the chat room on the other topic about Washington Post. Yeah, it has changed. It's gotten a lot better, I think, under, under Bezos. Yeah, so that is the uh, the plan to outlaw abortion. You know, abortion seems like one of the smallest things that we have to think about right now. But, I mean, imagine that here we are in the 21st century and we're actually still talking about criminalizing abortion 
about, you know, putting women in prison for asserting their own rights to their own life. It is ridiculous. Corey says the religious right just won't let it go unheard. Yeah, that's it. Um, Rob says it doesn't look like the override's going to happen, but it's not 5 o'clock yet. Yeah, I mean, who knows what kind of weird surprise they could bring up. Uh, Rob, do you, does it look to you like they even have the votes to override? I would hope, again, in the 21st century, that even in a state like Oklahoma, you would not have the votes to override a veto on a measure that completely effectively bans abortion. That is ridiculous. Even in Oklahoma, I would think, you wouldn't have that many votes, that there's going to be enough moderates, so to speak, uh, among the Republicans there. But anyway, let me know what you think. Um, Another horrific piece of news for today is Obama. Obama has been visiting Japan, you might know, and... This is from I got I got Jim Treacher's version of the story over from the Daily Caller, and he says when the White House declared that President Obama would visit Hiroshima, but would not apologize for bombing it in 1945, I was pleasantly surprised. He says I assumed that that meant he really wouldn't apologize, but my mistake. And here's a quote from an article from Douglas Ware at UPI quote President Barack Obama traveled to Hiroshima, Japan on Friday marking the first time a U.S. president has visited the site of the world's first nuclear attack carried out more than 70 years ago. Here's a quote from Obama. He says, 71 years ago, on a bright, cloudless morning, death fell from the sky and the world was changed. He says, a flash of light and a wall of fire destroyed a city and demonstrated mankind possessed the means to destroy itself. He says, let all the souls here rest in peace for we shall not repeat the evil, end quote. And then Treacher proceeds to do the appropriate riff on the choice of the word evil, right? You are ending World War II by doing this. You are defeating an enemy, writes Treacher, who has attacked us unprovoked, and this is what you're calling evil. You know, imagine all of the lives that were saved, right? Um, but he says, no, this is what the word evil means now, that you actually end a war. You fight back against an aggressor who attacked you unprovoked, and that is somehow evil. Treacher writes, he says, look, I'm not glad that all these people died. I'm not glad that the survivors and their families have suffered. I would have preferred that Japan hadn't attacked the United States in the first place. Right? That's the point. If Japan hadn't attacked the United States in the first place, this would not have been necessary. He says it would have been nice if World War II hadn't happened at all. But Japan did attack us. The war did happen, and we won it. We defeated evil. And then he's got a picture of the men, the crew of the Enola Gay, and he says these men saved the world. And he says Barack Obama should be ashamed of himself for disrespecting them. The United States rights treacher has nothing to apologize for. Remember Pearl Harbor, forget Obama. And apparently in that speech, Obama had nothing to say about Pearl Harbor, the unprovoked attack at Pearl Harbor. Uh, by the way, my grandfather was uh, at somewhere near Pearl Harbor uh, at the time that it was attacked, and he was later you know, part of the, the war effort as well. His brother actually died 
in World War II. I've got a picture of that where he's sitting over, my uh, my grandfather is sitting over his brother's hospital bed. It's really sad. Imagine how many more people like my grandfather would have died. I might not even be here, right, if that hadn't, that bomb had not been dropped. I might not be here because my grandfather would have, probably had to continue to fight and may have lost his life. So, the, you know, that's what Barack Obama is calling evil. It's disgusting. Hi, is this Debbie? Hello? You're on the air. At least I think you're on the air. I'm not able to hear anything right now. Hmm. I don't know what's going on. Hello? No? Okay, I can't hear you, Debbie, so maybe I'll try again in a bit here. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with my with my audio. Um, let me try one more time. Hello, Debbie? Hmm, I'm trying to have you on the air. Oh, wait, now I, I hear something. Are you there, Debbie? No? Okay. Maybe she didn't mean to talk right now. Um, now what is this? Obama, death from above. He's anticipating the bombing of Israel. Yeah, maybe. I don't know if he is, right? If if uh, if there's a nuclear bomb dropped on Israel courtesy of Iran, would he call that evil in the way that he's calling this evil? Somehow I doubt it. <sighs> Freena Bree says, so many government leaders are into apologies these days. Trudeau just apologized to East India for blocking immigrants from entering Canada in 1919. Yeah, I mean, they always want to apologize for for their countries, but this is particularly inexcusable. As I said, if it was not, and actually I I was just kind of making this connection here today, which is funny because this topic has come up in when at time I was teaching at the Air Force Academy and everything else, I actually might not exist, right? I might not exist if this bomb had not been dropped because, as I said, my great uncle, my grandfather's brother, was lost in World War II, and I'm probably very lucky that my grandfather wasn't lost due to this. Motive Power says we should apologize for our politicians indeed. And by the way, Motive Power, I don't know if you were hearing earlier in the show, I thanked you for the uh, the story that gave rise to the title of the show. My Mac laptop is giving me fits here again. I might have to zoom to the phone here pretty soon. So I'm back over at the program notes again at don'tletitgo.com and um, yeah, Obama apologizing. He's he's doing as much damage as possible on his way out the door. One of the stories I could have put but didn't, everyone's talking about the mansion he's going to live in when he leaves the White House. It's going to be very close to the White House, or not very far anyway from the White House, a, a mansion with walls and everything. So it's going to be a very familiar environment uh, for what he has now. Have the Secret Service and everybody else defending him for the the rest of his life while he lets all of us live in the aftermath that he has created. But now you start thinking about the next election, who's going to be our next president? And we have, as Chip Joyce has educated me, the Morton's Fork of Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. P.J. O'Rourke has a really fun little piece this week endorsing Hillary Clinton. And it's called, I'm endorsing Hillary Clinton, the devil we know. And it is filled with a bunch of wonderful little one-liners that you just have to read for yourself. But, you know, when he describes Trump, for instance, he says that Trump 
flies to and fro in the earth with gold-plated seatbelt buckles, talking nativist, isolationist, mercantilist, bigoted, rude, and vulgar crap. <laughs> P.J. O'Rourke is too funny. And he says, the electorate is possessed by a demon, too, if you count Bernie Sanders, who is, and he describes Bernie Sanders as the Donald Trump for people still living in their parents' basements. <sighs> so, you know, he says, as wicked... As Hillary is, he pledges all of his aid to Hillary in confining Donald Trump to the stocks on the It Takes a Village green. Um, he calls you know, Donald Trump the flying monkey to Hillary being a witch, so to speak. Um, um, she, Hillary, he says, is to politics and statecraft what Pope Urban VIII and the Inquisition were to Galileo. She thinks the sun re- revolves around herself, et cetera. Um, let, me, let me see what else. Uh, she, he says, better to root up the garden of free enterprise with Democratic pigs than run off a protectionist cliff with the guardian swine Republicans. Um, and he says, here's to you, Hillary, for saving your best bloviation for your highly paid speeches to shady bankers. I would if I could pay Trump more to shut up. Hillary, he says, you are the crone in crony capitalism. I endorse you. (laughs) Um, He says, better a Marie Antoinette of the left saying, quote, let them eat fruit and fiber, end quote, than a know-nothing who would be a Robespierre if he could spell it. Just so evil. Um, She doesn't cheat at golf, he says. Um, so sad, so sad. Um, anyway, he says, I endorse you even though you don't belong in power. You, uh, you picture of self-satisfaction out of doors. He says, count me the Yago of your supporters. You ding-dong bell in your west wing, wildcat in your can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, plaster saint in your injuries, player in your housewifery, and housewife in your bed. Oops, sorry, my mistake. That's somebody else's wife in bed with your husband. And he just goes on and on. Um, at the end, he calls her Jimmy Carter in a pantsuit. But, you know, again, what is the whole message here? She is the lesser of two evils. He calls her the second worst thing that can happen to America. And I guess because of that, he thinks that the worst thing that can happen to America is so bad that he endorses her. Of course, you know what I've been saying on this show. I don't know if I could endorse or vote for either of those. And in fact... I am thinking of, um, you know, going ahead and, and voting for Gary Johnson because of that. Now, let's see here. What are we talking about here in terms of the other options? Uh, selecting the known quantities. Yeah, the known quantities. Um, Sally is saying in the chat room, I'm too fond of the Second Amendment to be complacent and basically vote for Hillary Clinton. I don't think I could vote for her. Uh, you know, again, for me, I'm thinking... She, if against Donald Trump, she'd be very likely to win. And in that case, if I vote for Gary Johnson, it's going to take away any sense of mandate that she would have if I give Johnson my vote instead of her. That's my idea. Now, Cobra Pilot in the chat room says, two words in favor of Trump, Trey Gowdy. You're going to have to explain that one because you lost me on that one. So if you can explain it, I'll get back to you on that. So PJ O'Rourke has, quote unquote, endorsed Hillary Clinton, but that was probably one of the best endorsements ever in terms of saying there's nothing good about you, but I endorse you anyway. 
a very disappointing endorsement this week. For I, I myself have never been a Marco Rubio supporter, but I know that a number of my Facebook friends and perhaps some listeners to this show, friends of mine in, in, in real life, not just Facebook, right, have been in favor of Marco Rubio. And my, you know, for me, I thought, okay, he's, he's not too bad. He's okay. Um, but now he is saying that he is willing to speak out on behalf of Trump. It says on Thursday, Rubio, this is uh, from the Washington Examiner, on Thursday, Rubio took another step toward fully embracing Trump for the presidency by telling CNN's Jake Tapper that he not only planned to attend the Republican convention, that he would be honored to speak on Trump's behalf. Quote, he says, look, my policy differences with Trump, I spent 11 months talking about them, so I think they're well understood, Rubio told Tapper. <laughs> it's so funny. How could anybody even talk about, quote, policy differences with Trump when Trump doesn't have any set policies that you can actually really compare yourself to? But he says, he says, that said, I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. If there's something I can do to help that from happening, it's helpful to the cause. I'd most certainly be honored to be considered for that, end quote. You know, Rubio used to call Trump a con artist, this article points out. And he predicted that a Trump presidency would bring, quote, chaos, that he was, quote, wholly unprepared to be president, etc., and I have seen comments out there basically saying this is the legacy of the Tea Party. You have Rubio out there doing like, you know, the Gang of Eight. And you have, I think it was um, someone named Steve Deves, was it, on Facebook? I can't remember who did this. I should find it and, and give him proper credit. But he was listing all the things. You know, Rubio gave up his Senate seat and did this. And now he's going to endorse Trump. And remember, Rubio got in on the power of the Tea Party, and this is what he has done with that political capital. It is truly, truly frightening. Um, I still do have, uh, I think, Debbie hanging on. I'm going to go ahead and give it one more try to see if she wants to chime in here. Hi, is this Debbie? Hi, Amy. Hi, Hi I, couldn't, I couldn't hear you earlier. Now I can hear you. Yeah, I just something might be wrong with my hands-free device, uh, so I unplugged that and I'm just talking into the phone the old-fashioned well, way. Well, be be careful with that because one of the stories I've got on the program notes this week is that they are confirming a link between holding the phones up to the head and cancer. No joke. Right. Sure, sure. I'm sure it's dose-dependent, and I hold it very seldom, so I'm not really worried. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So actually, I was calling when you were talking about Hiroshima. And it just occurred to me when Obama said um, something about he, the evil is never going to be repeated. Yeah. Are you sure he wasn't talking about his presidency? <laughs> That's a good one. That's yeah. what I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, there's that. But then, uh, of course, we know that bombing, I mean, I've heard people justify the Hiroshima bombing. Of course, that it saved American lives, which I think is the only necessary justification since Japan right. was the aggressor in that case. But sometimes I hear people say, you know, it also saved a lot of Japanese lives. And I'm just not sure if that's a valid way to look at it. I mean, not that it gets the Japanese now, but they were the aggressors. And I just don't think that taking into account, you know, one should design any kind of warfare operations around um, 
enemy casualty, enemy civilian casualties. I don't think that should no. be an issue. No, so, no. Um, so there's that. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, if it's if it's just an added argument for, but you know, I again, whenever I go back to that one initial article that was Jerome Brook and Alex Epstein years ago. There was a, I think it's called Just War Theory and American Self-Defense. And what do they talk about? The standard. And, you know, this is also, Alain Journo has, I think, Just and Unjust Wars is, is the collection that he edited later. But, you know, what is the standard? The standard is eliminating the threat with minimal loss to life and property on our side, right? We yep. were not the aggressors. We were, you know, they were the aggressors. They were unprovoked by us. And we have the right to do whatever is necessary to eliminate the threat with minimal loss of life on our side. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, people do that. They talk about, you know, not only us, but them. And, and that's altruism. That's just pure naked altruism rearing its very ugly head. Uh, you know, talk about right. evil. Talk about evil. Evil is, is altruism. This idea that a very properly selfish strategy in that war can now be labeled as evil and that he can pretty much get away with it in today's culture is ridiculous. What I can tell you from my personal experience is that in any of the military academies today, we're talking, you know, the Naval Academy, West Point, um, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, the people who teach ethics in the departments there almost uniformly would agree with Obama on this. They would say that it is evil. That is based on my personal experience hearing people. They, they, I actually heard one uh, colleague of mine say that if a cadet, an Air Force cadet, believed that that was not evil, and, and uh -huh. also like you know, the carpet bombing in Germany and stuff, then you actually weren't you know, fit to be a member of the Air Force. Wow. Yes. That crazy yes so um you know talk about the need to boil an ocean try to boil an ocean so to speak we definitely need to get the word out there that no this is this is not evil this is the opposite of evil it is a proper policy taken in american self-defense yep you know it's like i like to say altruism is the ultimate weapon of mass destruction mm-hmm mm-hmm that's exactly right. That's, That's exactly uh, right. Wow. So now they're teaching our soldiers that it's, uh, that uh, things like that are evil, too. That's um, that's really upsetting. Um, so the uh, the situation with Trump and Hillary, uh, with Marco Rubio endorsing Trump, I'm, I'm really not surprised. And uh, I'm definitely not going to vote for either one. But I was wondering what you think about the choice of vice presidential candidate, uh, a running mate. Could that perhaps, is there any meaningful way in which that might matter? So, for example, are you talking about Trump defies all odds and selects Cruz? Yeah, or, or someone even better. But just, yeah, just kind of for the sake of argument, since we don't yet know, it just, um, I still kind of, it rattles around in the back of my mind, like, could it matter? Could that sway my decision if he, or really unlikely, even more impossible, if Hillary <laughs> picks someone really great as a running mate, might uh -huh. that sway the decision? 
<laughs> I don't see that happening, but yeah, you know, right. Because you know, Hillary, <laughs> Hillary is more methodically bad than Trump is. I think Trump is just such a bizarre wild yeah. card. I, I'm trying to think of how I put it this week because uh, Alex Epstein had put a little survey out there about you know the the Hillary versus Trump or why why wouldn't you vote for Trump and. I was saying that basically Trump has no principles and he has instincts that are very cronyist, you know, I guess you'd say also protectionist, right? That's where his knee jerk reactions are. And yeah, he's that, a maniac. That combination, yeah, but he could for weird pragmatic reasons, potentially choose somebody like Cruz or better. Um, if he could, Maybe, maybe. But, you know, again, I'd have to see all of this happening, and we've got many months to go before the end of this. It's just sad that someone like Trump gets the GOP nominee. Oh, my gosh. I know. I mean, somebody I was talking to at work, like, the good news at least is that a lot of people understand, a lot of people really hate the options that they have. Like, someone I was talking to at work yesterday said, yeah, we're stuck choosing between a socialist, criminal, and a maniac. There's no winning. Yeah. In, yeah. in that case, now I was actually thinking about starting a, a writing campaign for John Galt. You know, just like if you're going to cast a protest vote and whoever you vote for is definitely not going to get elected anyway, why not send a clear message? But then, you know, you're, I've, I've uh, got a last week. I've got a pact actually. I've got a pact right now. I don't know if I'm really going to do this. I'm going to have to talk to Sanders about this. But Joe Sanders on Twitter, he says, "How about?" Amy, I'll write you in and you write me in. I said, okay, cool. All right. We're going we're gonna to write yeah. each other in. I don't know. We we could have like a, um, I don't know what you call that, where it's like in a circle. So, like, you know, I'll write Joe in and Joe will write Debbie you in and then, you know, you can write me in and we'll just kind of go in a big circle. We'll write a whole bunch of uh, objectivists and capitalists in. That would be awesome. Yeah, I, I suppose. But then that wouldn't send a – there wouldn't be any kind of message in that because it would just look like a bunch of random people. I guess my thinking was – now, actually, you were talking about the libertarian candidate last week, and that really kind of got me thinking, too. If if there were a lot of votes, significant number that went to the libertarian, that might help build up that party uh, as an alternative because um, the argument against going third party is usually, well – the Republicans aren't too – there's still some hope for the Republicans, and they're better than the Democrats, and if we go third party, that guarantees that a Democrat wins. But this year, there's kind of an opportunity in a way because it's right. so bad. The choices are so dismal that a third party could – this could be like a chance to kind of build in the direction of a third party without – I mean, what, what do we got to lose at this point? So, right, um, right. You kind of got me thinking along those lines when I listened to the podcast from last week. In, yeah, and, I, and, and I'm I'm Gaul. still I'm I'm definitely still thinking along those lines. Um, you know, if there wasn't a Gary Johnson to vote for, then maybe a, a John Galt. Um, some people are asking about Austin Peterson. I don't know if they're going to nominate him or Gary Johnson. I think if they want to really siphon off some votes. They're going to nominate Gary Johnson because Gary Johnson's got the name recognition. He's not going to be as you know scary to a lot of Republicans to vote for. So if they really want to make a dent, they're going to they're going to do Gary Johnson. But we'll see. Um, I've got a few more calls that I want to go ahead and grab. Do you have anything else, Debbie, okay. before I go? Uh, no, I'll let you go so you can take those other calls. Good okay. talking to you. Good talking to you. You take care, and we'll talk soon. All right. 
Okay, let me go ahead and grab. I've actually got a few more calls. Thank you. Glad that everybody's calling in. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, this is Charles. Hi, Charles. Are you a first-time caller? No, this is my second time. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's been a little bit of a while, or maybe my memory's bad, so sorry about that, but welcome. Thank you. Uh, I just want to talk about, you know, to highlight some stuff about this latest Obama morass is that, you know, the thing that's really infuriating about it is, you know, this is a guy who, you know, because of his foreign policy, you know, like, for instance, in regards to Libya, I mean, there's people suffering there right now who are being raped and tortured and murdered, but I doubt we'll get an apology from him on that. But he can apologize for the 70-plus-year dropping of a bomb or two bombs on Japan uh, a totally just and moral action. I don't right. see how his foreign policy is just at all. And another thing is, you know, uh, something that really ticked me off was he said, you know, we're, he said, we're here to, you know, honor all the dead. And, you know, the, the government of Japan back then was, you know, uh, that their God emperor Hirohito said that, there is no man, woman, or child he will not sacrifice to achieve victory in that war. They were right. literally strapping bombs to children so the children could dive under tanks and detonate themselves. Their preferred method of warfare was suicide. And the idea that we're going to honor uh, that culture at that time of literally nihilistic, sacrificial suicide killing and that, that's the kind of dead that should be honored versus our government and our president, who was not a god emperor. There was no mysticism with Harry Truman. He wasn't worshipped. Uh, our soldiers weren't killing as many people and then take killing themselves along with those people. Uh, and the fact that he's going to honor all the dead when the Japanese government had no uh, care to honor their own people or right. cared about the lives of their own people and were willing to fight down to the last man, woman, and child, as their government said. And as proof of that is that we had to drop two bombs. If the government cared about their people, exactly. they would have surrendered after the first bomb dropped. No, and that's true. So, and that's true. If they, if they had surrendered after the first bomb dropped, then they could have saved a lot more of their own people as well. But you're right. They didn't have that regard. Now, Obama's going to come in and say, well, it's true that at that time they did not, but we're going to be so big now that we're going to, you know, for, forgive all of this. Uh, he's, he's the big guy on, on our behalf. But, you know, what do you think about the, the fact, Charles, that basically in all the military academies, they are teaching exactly what Obama said, that that was evil. Yeah, I mean, it's the destruction of the U.S. military. I mean, we can't hope. We, you know, there's a reason we really haven't won since World War II. I mean, Korea was half a win. And since then, all we've done is lose. And it's because, you know, the rules of engagement are created to benefit the other side. Yeah. And our side is constantly hamstringed. And our soldiers are now being taught that, you know, they have to sacrifice, you know, it's like when you watch that movie, uh, you know, that American sniper movie, I mean, just the way that uh, Clint Eastwood showed how that war was conducted, you know, soldiers sacrificing themselves, uh, going door to door to door to, to, you know, question people 
people who have already been told to leave and vacate because it's a war zone and, if, you know, sacrificing themselves to, you know, make sure every Iraqi is safe. Yep. I mean, it, it's, it's reprehensible. And on top of that, you know, we dropped millions of leaflets. I mean, you, you can find it online the, uh, over Nagasaki, over uh, Hiroshima, and over the other cities and towns that were targeted with conventional bombs. Uh, we dropped them saying, you know, our war isn't with the Japanese people. It's with your, your evil government. And those leaflets made very clear uh, to evacuate. And if you don't evacuate, these cities uh, are targeted because they are supplying military weaponry and everything right, else right. Uh, to, to prolong the, the warfare. And so, you know, we did our part. And if, and if they didn't evacuate and if they didn't take, have any regard for their own people, that's on them. It's not on us. And on top of it, you know, the Japanese killed double the amount of people in China far more brutally and far more horrifically uh, in the rape of Nanking. They killed about 300,000 people. They literally, you know, raped towns to death and bayoneted children and all, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I don't see uh, uh, apology forthcoming. I don't see the Japanese prime minister heading to Nanking to prostrate himself before the Chinese and apologize no. for what their emperor did all those it's, you decades know, it's, ago. It, it, it's only because we're the ones who are poisoned with the Kantianism uh, to go around apologizing in the name of the so-called altruist ethics. It's disgusting. Um, any, anything else, Charles? I've got a few other calls that I do want to grab before the, the show is over. No, that's pretty much all I had to say. Thanks for taking Yeah, I, I, I agree with you entirely. Thanks for calling, Charles. Let me go ahead and get another. I actually have three other callers. This is a, quite a day for calls. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, this is Dan. Um, Hi, Dan. Naval How Academy grad of 2008, and you are absolutely right wow. about them teaching that World War II was a mistake to drop those bombs. I mean, they, uh, they were, at least in 2008, when I was in 2004 to 2008, when I was in uh, they were teaching just war theory. I bought into it. Um, at the time, yeah. I thought altruism was a good idea. So, I mean, they're teaching officers, which more or less propagate planning, ideas, strategies, tactics, training, all into that. And it really, um, before I actually joined the fleet, I, I was introduced to Ayn Rand, thankfully, so I can actually understand what was going on. I went to Afghanistan in 2012, and before... We, we went into country. We were at the base. Before they would push us out to our forward position, we got to see the judge advocate or the military lawyer for the Marines. Mm-hmm. And he was basically explaining the rules of engagement, which for those that don't know, I mean, that's, that's got not just guidelines. Like, they, that has legal authority. If right. you don't, if you break the rules of engagement, I mean, it's the law, the force, the entire state's coming down on you. And it was described in a scenario that if you're getting shot at and you have no idea whether or not there's actual civilians in there and you can't shoot back if you have a way out. And that is so impossibly vague and impossible. I mean, no one has, I'm an Intel officer. I was an Intel officer and uh, you you don't have a perfect picture. And so that that's impossible to understand. And so one of our staff sergeants was like, are you kidding me? Like I can't shoot back. And then the lawyer pretty much, you know, uh, sort of stood up, looked at him straight in the eye, and like was like upset that he even asked that question, and says, right. "It sounds like you guys need to be remediated." And so you guys take a minute, to discuss it with yourselves. I'll come back and ask the question again, 
And <laughs> I'm like, they, he was dead serious. And I mean, that's just war theory. So we went from like winning wars, dropping bombs on our enemies to, to this just war theory. And we're wondering why we're losing. And it's more than just destroying our military. It's destroying the American ego. The fact that, you know, the belief that we have a right to live and defend ourselves against those that would like to destroy right. us. Like it, it's right. It's completely and, insane. Well, and, and the worst, it, I mean, well, it's not the worst, but this is just added insult to injury. I was teaching at the Air Force Academy, and, and there's a top just war theory scholar by the name of Martin Cook who was there. And then I guess by the time you graduated, Dan, at the Naval Academy, he moved over to the Naval War College, I believe, is where he is now. And I remember that Martin Cook was asked to speak about just war theory all around the world, sometimes virtually over Skype or something, but sometimes he would travel and teach this stuff. Why? Because, you know, we once were the top military in the world, so successful and won wars like World War II. And everybody in the world, of course, wants to know the secret sauce. They want to learn from us. But little do they know the thing right. that's being propagated by us around the world is total poison, complete and total poison. I mean, you're you're put in a position where you 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 either uh, lose or you win and, and believe yourself to be an immoral monster. I mean, it's I mean, and that's not I mean, you can't live with yourself either way. Um, right. And it's it's just it's just a mess there. Uh, yeah. So I mean you're, I mean yes absolutely you, you drop the bombs I mean and I would I would say target economics I mean if it's part of the system that's that's geared towards destroying you target it um, I mean it, your your job as a country is to destroy the threats and every part of the system needs to be taken into consideration and you don't target civilians willy nilly I mean you just you think about it what's the most efficient effective fast cost effective uh, right. free method to, to destroy your enemy, to return exactly. back to normalcy. That, yes. That's the goal. Yeah, and, and, and now we don't. I would love not to walk through a security line. Yeah, I was just <laughs> thinking no exactly that same thing. You know, the, the TSA lines are obscene from what I'm reading, and it is disgusting that we have to do that instead of actually eliminating the threats. Yeah. yeah. So Thank I, I want to... Uh, Comment. Hey, I like Debbie's comments. I've been listening for a while, and every time she calls in, it's been really interesting. And I'm glad she's moving over towards thinking third party. And uh, I think I think she made a good point. That's right. You could put more emphasis, um, more emphasis into libertarians, and possibly get the Republicans to steal some voters and change their platform by doing so. Yeah, that's that's what I think so. as well. Is that the Republicans would say, "Oh, we're losing to the libertarians. We have to adopt more of what they're doing and less of our, you know." religious conservative staple that they've been doing. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dan. I'm going to go ahead and grab another caller. Hopefully hear from you next time. Let's grab the next call. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Matt. Matt. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hey, you were uh, talking about uh, teaching just war theory and military ethics. And uh, since I used to do that, I thought I might uh, join and chime in. Okay. Go right ahead. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because you mentioned the Air Force Academy, and I taught at the uh, Joint Forces Staff College. Okay. And uh, one of the first things I would do was have uh, my students uh, read Ayn Rand's uh, essay, Philosophy, Who Needs It? Right, because that was, that was a wonderful 
wonderful speech for people who don't know, by the way. And I actually have a link to the book, Philosophy Who Needs It, that has that as an introductory essay. I have that at the bottom of today's program. Notes. But that essay, for people who don't know it, it's the text of a speech that she gave at West Point to graduating cadets in what, 60 what? Do you remember? 72? I can't remember. Yeah, I think. Okay. Late 60s, early 70s. So you have them read that, and then what? You're breaking up. I can't hear you. Are you there? Hello? Huh. I'm not hearing you. Okay, now I can hear you. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, we would, uh, I'd also have them read youth And one of the funniest things that I had happen is I had one student, he was an Air Force major, he was going out to teach at the academy. And he noted, one of the things that he noted fairly early in class was that if uh, you cannot be, you cannot be moral if you're an atheist because ethics relies on God. Mm. And so I asked him about Euthyphro. And, of course, he hadn't read it. And I told him, well, if you don't understand Euthyphro, you have no business teaching ethics of any kind. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I had to deal with that all the time. There was a whole lot of religious, uh, extremely religious people and uh, who bought into that same thing and probably worse in the Air Force than any other branch of the service. Right. So and then I don't it, know why that it, is. And if, if the ethics is inherently religious, then at the very beginning you've got altruism baked into ethics as an assumption, right? Because, you know, what do you do with Absolutely. Kant? You just basically secularize it. So there there isn't a secular ethics, but if there is, it's got to be one in which altruism is, is baked in as an assumption a la Kant, and that's the only choice we're given. I would Well, it's funny because uh, there would be a few uh, strong leftists in the class or two, and when I come across them, uh, more often, well, occasionally they be atheists. And so I'd always mm-hmm. ask them, well, your leftist ideology is based upon religious ethics. How do you reconcile those? Mm-hmm. Of course, they never gave me any answer. So yeah. a lot of contradictions out there. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it sounds like you were one of the people basically trying to boil the ocean if you were even <laughs> letting students read Ayn Rand in that environment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I th- I thank you for doing that because anytime you can expose a student even to one essay of Rand and just show them that there is an alternative out there, it's not like you have to proselytize on behalf of that alternative. You just teach all the different viewpoints and you teach Rand alongside or even Aristotle alongside, then you've set somebody on a path to figure out the truth for themselves later like Dan, the other caller there. So so I thank you for doing that. Um, Matt, I'm going to have to go ahead and, and grab another call, but I look forward if you do want to uh, call in again and talk more about your experience. That would be great. Let me get this last call before I try to mop up some of the program notes that I've got at the at the blog. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hey, Amy, this is Corey. How are you? I'm doing okay, Corey. How are you? Good. Hey, you got me. Uh, I'm all worried now about cell phone radiation, so I had to put my earbuds in. Very good. Do it. Yes, all the time. Uh, um, any, yeah, I know. I'm like freaking out a little bit now, so I'm going to be going no, with no, the earbuds okay. from now on. 
actually, you know, I, I could just go ahead and give you the gist because I've got the link to the story over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com so you can read it all. But the gist of it is is that they did this study on the rats and they exposed the rats to the same type of radiation, this RF, whatever it is that comes from the cell phones. And in the group that was exposed to the radiation, between 2 and 3% of the rats got these tumors, these brain tumors. And in the control group, they didn't get any tumors. So my guess is that it would have to be a significant dose of the radiation plus probably some other risk factors. It's not like the, you know the mere fact that you had the cell phone up to your ear means that you're automatically going to get it. So it's, so it's still a relatively small, but still 2 or 3% versus 0 is a significant right. difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, I've already had brain cancer. I overcome that, so Ooh. I don't need Ooh. to have it happen again. So yeah. No, you don't. Okay, wow. It's, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm on seven years tumor-free, so that's good. Keep up those earbuds. Keep up those earbuds. Yeah. Anyway, I just got a couple of quick things. I know we're heading up to the end here. Um, mm-hmm. So Obama not only apologized for the bombings, but he also apologized for the name of the Enola Gay, saying it should have been Enola LGBT. What? You're joking. Yeah. So that was that was something that I think he should have apologized for. Oh, you? Oh, he should have done that, is what you're saying. Yeah. He should. He might as well have, right? We like all maybe I didn't. Sorry, I thought I, I thought you said. He, yeah, you should have presented. He should have apologized for that. Okay, thank you. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I threw that out in the chat earlier. Yeah, but we, we all know what they meant by gay at that time and stuff. It was a completely different thing, right? Um, but, yeah. Um, right. Rob, Rob, uh, I think rightly in the chat room, he's saying yikes. He's, he's not a big uh, fan of that joke, but go on. Anyway, so, yeah, and then uh, I wanted just to say, hey, aren't you kind of a little bit uh, okay with Trump being the nominee because aren't you kind of sick of the Republican Party and maybe we should just blow it up? Okay, but, you know, yeah, blowing up the Republican Party, but at what cost to all of us? You know, and and here's the thing. Would it really blow up the party if Trump got in? Because some of them, all they care is that somebody with an R next to their name gets in and that somehow then the party is preserved. And if you can show them a defeat, then you can show them that they should question anything that ever got us to the place where we're nominating somebody like Donald Trump. So I think they need to be handed a defeat. And I think it needs to be a pretty massive defeat too. I would, I would like to see them, if you really want to blow up the party, which I think it deserves to be blown up. You're right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just, I just, I kind of just like, well, just screw it. You know, just whatever happens, let's just, the Republicans are dead anyway. Let's just blow it up and whatever. Let's just disrupt the whole the whole deal and be, find a whole new way. And both parties are the same anyway. In the, at the end of the day, they both just want the same thing, just in different, you know, they have different ways of going about it, I guess. But you know what I mean? So, by the it. way, by the way, Corey, I, I misunderstood yeah. Rob here in the chat room. Rob was not saying yikes about your joke. So I guess your joke is, is fine with Rob. But he's, the, he said yikes about the brain cancer, which, of course, I think would be the scarier thing and so why I didn't say that I guess it was the delay in in the chat room here but yeah yeah uh, please I got a, I got a, hey I got some good re, I got good reception there I got some LOLs on it I guess maybe I just didn't say it right when I called in <laughs> no you said that he had also apologized about that and I, right, I didn't that's why I know, and I, 
yeah, I didn't structure the joke right. I had plenty of time to think about it, and it just didn't come out right. Next time, next time we, there's always going to be a next time we can try again, okay? I'll send you some notes like Rob does, and then we'll go from there. That sounds awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, you can send, you can send things, uh, you know, sometimes through the blog, but the way that a lot of people do it is just on the Don't Let It Go On Herd page on Facebook. If you post there, it's awesome. Yeah, sounds okay. great. Well, hey, uh, have a great Memorial Day. You too. You too. And uh, do do take care. Keep those earbuds in. And, yeah, I, I look forward to getting some uh, some more notes from you, Corey. So everybody zoom over because I'm going to go over to don'tletitgo.com and run you through some of the stories there. Thankfully, I think I've gotten through most of the, the meteor stuff, and, and this is just kind of an FYI, a bunch of these. Uh, the next two stories that I've got, after the Donald Trump, you know, has exposed Marco Rubio as the non-principled, lame consequence of the Tea Party that he is. The next two stories both have to do with the issue of Islam prohibiting certain types of interactions between men and women. So in the first, we learn that Iranian students were lashed 99 times so physically punished with lashing 99 times. Why? Because they had a party that included men and women, a co-ed party. So for having a co-ed party in Iran, people choosing to actually be at a party with both men and women, you can get lashed, physically punished 99 times. That must be insanely painful. So in Iran, they actually want, you know, the students they would like to interact with. Students of the opposite sex, imagine that, it's kind of normal. But in Switzerland, apparently, there are Muslim boys who do not want to interact with members of the opposite sex. Maybe they're trying to make some kind of statement. But there were Muslim boys in a Swiss school who did not want to shake a female teacher's hand. Why? Because their religion prohibits them from doing this. So imagine in Iran, they want to interact with members of the opposite sex. In Switzerland, you've got these Muslim immigrants, migrants who say, no, I do not want to shake the female's hand. The Swiss school system has said, no, you must shake the hand of the teacher, even the female ones, if you're going to be a member of the school. Now, we can unpack that. We could say, okay, why not have private schools and then you can send your Muslim boys to the Muslim private school where they don't have to shake the hands if you want. But insofar as if I was running a school, I would not allow that. If it was a you know the protocol of the school to shake the teacher's hand in greeting, all the students would have to do it, otherwise they couldn't come to the school. Similarly, if I was running a so-called public school system, a government school system, you would not let them get away with that if you're making a policy for something like that. This idea that you're going to have some sort of a an exception to rules of decorum because of somebody's religion. Again, this is the 21st century, and you have people saying that they cannot shake a woman's hand due to their religious beliefs. That is ridiculous. It's out, gone. But how, how's that for a contrast? In Iran, they want to interact. In Switzerland, they come to the West, and then they say, oh, no, no, I can't even shake your hand. Ridiculous. Article that Kira Peikoff sent over Facebook. It is, Professor, if you read to your kids, you're unfairly disadvantaging others. You may have seen an article like this before, but there are professors out there who are saying, you know, all you parents who read to your kids, 
you know, heaven forbid you read your kids on a nightly basis, because if you do that, you are unfairly disadvantaging the other kids whose parents don't read to them. Imagine this. This is something that parents of any financial means can manage to do for their kids, to read to them on a regular basis. And even that is unfair. Why? I guess because it takes a certain amount of effort and forethought and planning and caring about your kids. And how dare you be in a loving household like that, right? So go ahead and check that out. Uh, A little bit of good news. Ted Cruz is still doing a lot of good stuff out there. He's challenging Obama on a number of fronts. And one of them is he was one of the senators who has demanded that the Department of Justice cease investigations into the opponents of Obama's energy policies. Now, that is a handful, right? So how many negatives are in here? They have to cease. That's one investigation into opponents of another. That's a negative. So it's a double negative here. Really what it is is they need to stop putting pressure, governmental pressure, on what we call climate change deniers or you know, the, those who question the so-called conventional wisdom on global warming. It is horrible that the government does this. Kudos to Ted Cruz for challenging that. Um, next article that I've got there, again, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to read all of these. And I do recommend any of these that interest you, go ahead and, and check them out. Uh, the next one is the one about the study that le- that links the cell phone radiation to cancer. I did scan that earlier, and as I said, the gist of it was that they did the study on the rats, and in the rats that were exposed to the radiation, between 2 and 3% of the rats would get these brain tumors and or uh, heart tumors, a certain type of heart tumor. And in the ones that did not get exposed to the radiation, the so-called control group, there were none of those cancers. So that is a significant difference. It doesn't mean that for sure if you've been holding the cell phone up that you're going to get cancer, but if you're holding a cell phone up to your ear, stop. You know, that that's the message of this. Get the little earbuds, uh, you know, maybe don't keep the cell phone too close to your body if you can otherwise and stuff. But there's that. Uh, I've got a one other sort of lifestyleish article just for your perusal. It's from the New York Times and it's Sorry, there's nothing magical about breakfast. And that article is a review of different studies questioning the conventional wisdom that if you don't eat breakfast, somehow you're at a disadvantage or that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And what the author of this article hypothesizes is that a number of those studies were based on kids, right? Because they always talk about school kids, if school kids don't have breakfast. But what he was saying is that a lot of the school kids who were either getting breakfast or not getting breakfast, they would have gone hungry otherwise. These kids were going hungry. So, of course, they did a lot better if they got breakfast. But if there's a child who is fed well on a regular basis and who just doesn't happen to be hungry for breakfast, you don't make that kid eat when he doesn't want to eat, when he's already well fed. If he doesn't feel like it, it's not going to make that big of a difference in his performance. Similarly for us, if you feel like eating, go ahead and eat. If you don't feel like eating, you can do what I do, which is I will have a huge chunk of butter, blend it up in my coffee, and drink that stuff. Uh, by the way, again, thanks to those of you who donate to the show and top off the buttered coffee fund on a regular basis. I, I appreciate that. You know, keeping me 
supplied with with the buttered coffee is is good stuff. But yeah, get that fat and butter going in the first you know half an hour of the day or so, and and you could do well for quite a while with that. So check that out. Um, a piece of good news, and I guess there's a whole lot of celebrations going around around uh, Aristotle's. I guess the 2400th anniversary of Aristotle's birth and or death around the time. Um, Aristotle was apparently buried in Stagira. And I guess Stagira is where he was born. He ended up dying somewhere else in Chalcis. But then they went ahead and I guess moved his ashes and created this tomb for him in Stagira, and they recently found it, and that's been in the news this week. I have the link to the story at don'tletitgo.com. Thanks to James Valiant for for sending that around. But they give you a little graphic of of what the tomb must have looked like and um, also pictures of what the site actually looks like now. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous site. There's a lot of really beautiful places in, in Greece if you haven't gone. I highly recommend Visiting, if you can figure out how to do so safely and effectively, of course. I'm hoping that they'll make some sort of, you know, site that is going to be open to tourists and, and visitors in honor of Aristotle here. I love the fact that we have people today who are devoting the time, energy, resources, and enthusiasm to something like this, finding Aristotle's tomb and preserving, you know, his... Uh, you know, his, his legacy and history. If you talk about somebody, again, who was trying to boil the ocean, so to speak, it definitely was Aristotle, because at the time, who was his revered teacher? It was Plato. Plato was the first, as far as we know, system builder in philosophy, the first and only. So if you talk about, you know, it, we could have many metaphors for it, boiling the ocean, fighting City Hall, all of this. Aristotle was doing it. Imagine if Aristotle had just kind of gone with the flow and said, oh, you know, if I was really trying to mount a radical challenge to Plato, that would be like boiling the ocean, trying to boil the ocean. So I don't think I'm going to do that. Everybody else agrees with Plato, and and so why bother? And instead, what did he do? He created the real fundamental alternative to Plato's views. And it's wonderful to see today the, you know, the, the respect, the reverence that is given to him and that's implicit in, in going out and doing all this effort to, to dig up his tomb and everything. Uh, Justine says Aristotle did boil the ocean. Exactly, he did. And, you know, imagine if nobody tried this. It, it takes sometimes one person. So uh, what I did want to leave you with was a little bit from Ayn Rand's essay. Those of you who have been following my show for a long time, you know that this show is named Don't Let It Go Unheard after an essay by Ayn Rand called Don't Let It Go. And that essay is in philosophy, who needs it? The it in Don't Let It Go means the American sense of life. But what I'm going to call your attention to now is a different essay. It's the one right before Don't Let It Go in philosophy, who needs it? It's called What Can One Do? And this is the essay that occurred to me when I was thinking of Teal saying, you know, don't boil the ocean or don't try to boil the ocean. Here's from Rand's essay. She says, suppose you are a doctor in the midst of an epidemic. You would not ask, quote, how can one doctor treat millions of patients and restore the whole country to perfect health? 
You would know whether you are alone or part of an organized medical campaign that you have to treat as many people as you can reach according to the best of your ability and that nothing else is possible. She says it is a remnant of mystical philosophy, specifically of the mind-body split, that makes people approach intellectual issues in a manner they would not use to deal with physical problems. They would not seek to stop an epidemic overnight or to build a skyscraper single-handed, nor would they refrain from renovating their own crumbling house on the grounds that they are unable to rebuild the entire city. But in the realm of man's consciousness, the realm of ideas, they still tend to regard knowledge as irrelevant and they expect to perform instantaneous miracles somehow or they paralyze themselves by projecting an impossible goal. And then she goes on to say that what you need to do is you need to spread the right ideas, and certainly Teal and others can go ahead and spread the right ideas on the basis that they're able to do. She says, what do you do? You speak. You speak, she says, on any scale open to you, large or small, to your friends, your associates, your professional organizations, or any legitimate public forum. She says, you can never tell when your words will reach the right mind at the right time. You will see no immediate results, but it's of such activities that public opinion is made. And indeed, that's what I do try to do here on Don't Let It Go Unheard, is speak on the scale available to me. I thank those of you who do make this show possible by supporting the show and and letting me continue to do it. As Rand says at the end of this essay, when do you keep doing it? She says, it's never too late or too early to propagate the right ideas except under a dictatorship. And indeed, I'll keep doing it as long as it's legal to do so. Thank you, all of you, for listening today. Thanks to all of you who called in as well. Like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to read any of the stories, continue the discussion, support the show. Uh, Thank you to those of you who have been sending in the donations. They are greatly appreciated. And I will talk to you next week, but most likely on the Saturday night time slot. Okay? So take care. Have a good Memorial Day weekend, and I'll talk to you then. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.